Hello, this is Hector Garcia. I'm an accountant and consultant, and this is Advisor's Corner. Today, I'm interviewing Ron Baker, or Ronald Baker, who is an author of several books. I believe it's seven books or eight books. I'll have him correct me <laughs> if I if I miscounted there. And he's a thought leader in the accounting profession and also pretty much any profession in which uh, sales as their main service, uh, knowledge, okay? Uh, he talks a lot about the knowledge economy and knowledge firms, knowledge transfer. And in the world of small business consulting or accounting or legal services, even you can even think about medical profession or architecture, engineering, um, where the main role of the work is to transfer knowledge or interpret knowledge or, or, or give information uh, to their clients and customers. So this is an area of focus that um, Ron Baker has, and I will ask him a few questions about that, but I'll also ask him a, a few other things, but there will be some context behind that. This is something that, uh, that I'm strongly interested in. Uh, Ron, welcome. Thank you, Hector. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. Did I, did I introduce you correctly? Did I miss something really important? You think there's something that uh, no, I should no. have mentioned? Nope, nope. That's that's good. <laughs> okay, so I want to start by asking you about the books that you've written. Um, if you actually go to Amazon and you type Ron Baker or Ronald Baker, you're going to see, I think it's eight or seven books. I read three of them, by the way. Uh, not all of them, but uh, I read three of them. It's eight or seven books. How many books is it exactly, Ron? It, it's seven. And, and that's why I use Ronald J. Baker, because when people go to Amazon, there's another Ronald Baker out there that writes on dinosaurs or something. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, otherwise, people just call me Ron. Right, got it. So, Ronald J. Baker, just search it on Amazon um, and check out his books. So, out of the seven books, Ron, and I'll, I'll mention them real quick um, it's Implementing Value Pricing, it's Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, The Firm of the Future, Mind Over Matter. And the soul of enterprise. I don't know if we, are we counting that one, Ron. The, the soul of enterprise. Yes. Okay. The soul yes. of enterprise. And then my first book. And my first book was a professional's guide to value pricing, which okay. is out of print. Okay, it's not not in print anymore. So you can all, only get it in uh, in electronic format, or you can only buy it bootleg. Um, no, probably just eBay. <laughs> Use copies. Well, you you got implementing value pricing, which I assume you know it was written ten years later, and I assume that one kind of supersedes that, correct? It does. Correct. Yeah. All right. Perfect. So out of the seven books, um, which was the most fun to write? <laughs> I don't know if any of them were fun. Uh, you know, I love that line that I hate writing, but I love having written. Sure. Uh, but when you're doing it, there's nothing more painful or lonely. I mean, it's really a, it's kind of a solitary exercise, even though you're, you're getting ideas from other people. Um, but, you know, when you actually go to sit down and actually work on a book, it is very solitary. I can see why a lot of writers drink. Um, but I have to say, if, if you're going to hold me to the word fun, that would have to be the first book. Because I knew when I was working on the first book that I was working on something revolutionary. And when I flung it out there to the profession, I knew it was going to cause waves. I didn't know how big, and I didn't know where, and I didn't know what it would mean. But, but I knew it was challenging the conventional wisdom. And so for me, that was exhilarating and, and groundbreaking. 
because I made some links in that very first book, which was published in July of 98, by the way, um, that had never been made before. Two specific links. One is hourly billing comes from Karl Marx's labor theory of value, and the timesheet comes from Frederick Taylor's scientific management, uh, both of which are history has proved are, were incorrect and actual frauds. Um, and, and I knew that would be revolutionary, and I knew that would uh, be very controversial to say and write, um, but I wanted to get the message out because I knew it was true. So this was your, your first book called The Professional Guides to Value Pricing. Um, and right. and this, is, this is the first time that you sort of exposed in detail uh, the fallacies behind uh, you know, timesheet or hourly billing when it when it when it talks specifically about professionals right because obviously you know there are other types of work in which it's very difficult to value price or 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 to just identify the the value you're giving we're talking about specifically professionals now how, how do you define professionals what's the best way to kind of define this whole um, scheme of what are professionals who are professionals <laughs> what a great question. We just did a workshop, Hector. I just got back last night from uh, Niagara Falls. Uh, Ed Klesson and I did a workshop called the Post-Professional Society where we dealt specifically with this issue. Uh, traditionally, if you look at the scholarship on, on professions, and believe it or not, there's a ton of scholarship, uh, academics, sociologists, you know, anthropologists, historians, uh, they've all we all study they all study um, professions and what does it mean to be a profession what are the criteria and the characteristics primarily there's three a profession has to have a common body of expertise so obviously lawyers doctors CPAs around the world you know if, if I put you in a room with a British chartered accountant you'd be able to strike up a conversation because there's that common understanding there's that common language we've all gone through the same curriculum so a common body of knowledge is the first requirement of a profession. And the second is autonomy and exclusion. A profession has to be self-governed, um, which is what autonomy means. It's a Greek word meaning self-governance. And that means a profession gets to decide who comes in and who gets kicked out when they act bad, right? If you fraud or acts discreditable to the profession, they can kick you out. So autonomy and exclusion. And the third one is a profession has to have a spirit of service. It has to put the public's interest above its own. And when those interests collide, then the public interest must come first. And those are the characteristics of, of traditionally of a profession. And I think what's a real interesting question today, given the technology, given artificial intelligence, deep learning, and other types of uh, digital platforms, the question is, are we merging into a post-professional society where the distinction of a professional from other types of workers is a distinction without a difference. And I believe it is. That's really insightful. Now, from, from what I understand, from, I'm understanding this. I, I know a little bit of your background. You used to be an accountant or you're a recovering accountant, as you say. <laughs> uh, uh, let's call it 20 years ago. And you were part of the profession you were you were part of 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 this this self-regulating body of of 400 or 500,000 CPAs however they are in the United States and you saw a problem um, not necessarily with the profession but you I think you saw the problem with 
what is it that we deliver or how do people uh, value what we deliver? And that's, I guess that's what inspired you to start on this journey, right? Yeah, what, like you say, I am a recovering CPA. I started my life in a big eight accounting firm, uh, Pete Morick, but I knew I wanted to be a CPA since the age of 15 and I actually started doing books and accounting and even taxes at the age of 15. I actually defended people uh, in front of the IRS at the age of 17, actually got power of attorney, had my own customer base, um, and, and actually defended people in audit uh, with the IRS at that age. So... I was very aware of how CPAs price their services by the hour. I kept a timesheet since the age of 15. Of course, when I went to work for the Big 8, you do the same thing. It's not until I left the Big 8 started my own firm that I quickly realized that the billable hour is a lousy customer experience. It's absolutely lousy because the customer never knows what something's going to cost. Now, Hector, if you and I go into a grocery store, buy indeed anything in this world, we know the price before we buy it. And we get to make a decision whether or not it, its price is, is acceptable compared to the value that we think we're going to derive from it. Uh, but when you bill by the hour, you're billing in arrears, and the only time the customer can make that decision is after the transaction. Well, that's a rotten time, not only for the customer to find out that they don't like the price, but it's a rotten time for the professional to find out that the customer doesn't like their price because now there's nothing they can do about it. They've already spent the resources. They've done the work, and now what can they do? They can only beg the customer to pay whatever they think, which is why our profession, and indeed any profession that bills by the hour, it's why they write down and write off more than they write up, which is a significant problem. So the professions that use the billable hour, and it's most of them, um, violate the laws of economics and violate the laws of consumer psychology by pricing in arrears. It's, they, they don't price in arrears. They bill in arrears. I want them to price up front so the customer can make that all-important value price trade-off before they buy, not after. Yeah, and I think this concept, um, although uh, in the two large professions in which embrace it the most or look look uh, after this the most or want to transition into this the most, which I think I feel it's accounting and legal services. Um, however, th this concept, I think, translates throughout, you know, you're talking about writing down invoices, you know, let's talk about uh, hospitals. I mean, hospitals, uh, we, nobody understands how billing works in hospitals. I mean, they just, they pump out a bunch of codes, a bunch of numbers, and then they get paid. I mean, this regular, this regulation also, and insurance companies, there's all sorts of things, but, but the, the numbers you're working with are just not real. You, you start billing and then you have to adjust and write down and I think you know from just from a professional practitioner um, what happens a lot is we don't talk about the price up front we don't price up front we have a sort of let's call it a feeling of pain threshold that the client has we do the work we send down we send out the bill and we hope the client doesn't get insulted by the price and doesn't leave us or that they you know pay and then they say they, they look for somebody else because just they didn't know and understand the price, or they end up complaining so much that, as you say, it's a good client, we want to keep him, we'll say, you know what, I'll lower it from 2000 to 1200 let's call it a day. So what ends up happening is this is just a very lousy practice. It's just, you know, number one, for the professional firm or professional company, um, 
you can't project your revenues accurately because you have to kind of cross your fingers and hope that the client's going to uh, uh, say okay. And also for the long term, it, it doesn't provide any, any any loyalty. I mean, I I am a practicing accountant, and when I get new clients that had other accountants, there's always the same. There's always the same complaint. You know, either they didn't provide proactive services, or they charged too much, or they charged every time I picked up the phone and called them. So I think that is not limited to just the accounting profession. I think that. All of us living things in an in, in in this economy, we want to know you know how much we're parting ways with our money, uh, and compare it against the value we're getting against it, regardless of whether we're working with a doctor, accountant, or as you say, the supermarket. So I think you know this is something that has profoundly profoundly changed me as a practitioner, but it's also changed the conversations I have with my clients. I think the biggest impact I've I personally had from reading your work. And following you in your in your podcast, which we'll mention as well, um, uh, is that it, it not only has has helped me price better, it's helped me help my clients price better. You know, challenge my my clients on how they look at price. You know, everybody thinks that price is a function of competition, and that is just a downward spiral. <laughs> I think. <laughs> no, you're right. Wow, there's a lot to unpack about that. But you're you're right. It is a the billable hour is a lousy customer experience, which is why I moved away from it in my own firm in 1989, me and my partner. And Hector, when we did this in 89, there was nobody on the circuit talking about it. There was no books. There was no speakers. There was nothing. There was no software company talking about it like there is today with Intuit and Sage and Zero and others. Uh, we just knew it was the right thing to do. And so we started doing it, and the customers loved it. In fact, many of them told me it was about time that I, <clears throat> that I started giving them certainty and price. Um, just one comment, real quick, on the medical profession. You know, part of the problem there is there's third-party payers, right? Whether it's insurance companies or the government. And the problem in the, in, with our healthcare system, at least in the U.S., is there's no transparency in price. You know, try and figure out what an MRI is going to cost you. You can't because the insurance companies actually view their pricing as a competitive advantage and they don't like to disclose it. So I always ask people if they're going to bring up medical analogies to look at the medical services that you do buy perhaps that are not covered by insurance where you're actually spending your own money out of your own pocket. So think of LASIK surgery, think of plastic surgery, any type of cosmetic surgery or think of veterinarians right? where you bring your dog or cat into the vet in those markets you do see transparency in pricing you do know the price of everything before your dog or you go under the knife or under the laser and you see healthy competition and you see the, you see a wide array of pricing and you're seeing it with concierge medicine as well so there, there's no doubt about it that pricing uh, has the uh, ability to change business models in, in any industry, whether you're talking about taxis and Uber, hotels and Airbnb, whatever. No, absolutely. And I, I want to kind of move away from pricing and value, which I know that you're, you can spend hours and hours talking about. It's definitely something that you know extremely well. But I want to talk about your insights uh, into other things, uh, business practices and things like that. But before doing that, let's kind of, let's talk about the Verisage Institute, because this is a uh, what you created or co-founded um, with the goal of making this information 
public and not only making it public, but making a, a, a real strong effort in making sure that it gets adapted. So can you talk about the Verisage Institute uh, real quick? Yeah, Verisage is a think tank that I, that I founded in 2001, along with my former partner, Justin Barnett, and my colleague, Dan Morris. They're both practicing CPAs uh, as well. And I'm a think tank junkie, so I belong to some 15 or so think tanks of all different persuasions uh, across the world. And I've always been intrigued by the think tank model because it's in, like in software, it's the it's the Linux model. It's open source. Think tanks don't deal with personalities; they deal with ideas, and they and they battle in the arena of ideas. So they find people who are like-minded, uh, maybe not on everything, but on on the big issues, and then they they try and persuade the public through rhetoric and and other devices, speeches, books, uh, of their positions. Now I think think tanks, and this is a separate conversation, but I think think tanks have eclipsed universities. Nobody gives a crap anymore what Harvard thinks. They care what Brookings Institution or Hoover Institution or Cato or American Enterprise or Heritage think, right? The, the think tanks are the brokers of ideas and they have a much bigger influence than universities, I believe, um, on the culture and on our politics and everything else. So I've always been intrigued with this model because it's all about the ideas. You look for the best minds, no matter where they come from, and you, you look at the idea, and you test the idea, and then you debate the idea, and I've, that's always intrigued me, because I didn't want to start a consulting firm. That's the last thing I wanted to, to do, was be a consultant. I wanted to push these ideas into the professions and have a dramatic imp impact on people's behavior and the way they think. And the best way to do that, w without a doubt, in my mind, is the think tank model. And so I wanted to work with like-minded people. So Verisage has 20, roughly 22 fellows around the world. Most of them are practicing in their area of specialty, whether they're lawyers or CPAs or IT consultants or consultants uh, or advertising uh, people. Uh, and they are as big a zealot as I am with teaching people value pricing, moving away from the billable hour, moving away from timesheets, and Veris, I always like to call Verisage a disembodied organization uh, that's held together by a set of ideals and ideas. So I can work with any one of these 22 people from around the world um, and, and do a program of any length, and it looks completely choreographed and, and rehearsed, because we share a common body of knowledge and a common language and a common purpose. And, and that's exhilarating to work with people who come from all various walks of the way, have very different political views. We always joke that outside of various age, we'd kill one another <laughs> uh, because we have such varying views. Uh, but when it comes to what we want to do for the professions uh, and businesses in general, we, we share a common understanding and a common purpose. And, and that's just exhilarating to work with really smart people. And, and that's, that's, what, uh, that's what we put together with Verisage, and I'm really I'm proud of it. That's, that's my legacy to the world. Awesome. Thank you. No, it's, it's very good. Now, I, I'm not personally involved with, with Verisage in any direct way, but I feel that I'm involved indirectly by subscribing to The Soul of Enterprise, which is a, a podcast that... I believe it's a Verisage production. Is, is that a Verisage production or is it just a Ron Baker at class production? Well, it's, 
It's me and Ed Kless, and Ed Kless is a senior fellow at Verisage and has been, I think, since 2005. Uh, and, and, of course, Sage, his, his employer, sponsors the, the radio show on voiceamerica.com. Sage and Verisage don't have anything to do with one another. It was just total coincidence that, yeah. that, I, that we named Verisage that, and then I started working with Sage and Ed. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the show is sponsored by Sage and a couple of other uh, businesses. And um, it runs on Voice America, which is a which is the oldest and largest uh, internet uh, broadcasting station uh, around. They've been around, I think, since 1994 or something on the internet. And it's a live show every Friday at one o'clock. And uh, we've been doing it now for a couple years. We've done about 113 episodes, and it's just been an absolute host that co-host that show with Ed Class of Sage. So if you're listening to this and you don't subscribe to the Soul of Enterprise, you can just search in however you get your podcast, The Soul of Enterprise, um, and it should show up. If you Google The Soul of Enterprise, you should get to the website where you can listen to it live through Voice America, or you can go to verisage.com. So there's, I guess, different ways to, to get to and it. And the Soul of Enterprise.com uh, will take you to yeah, that will take you to all of our shows. You can listen right there, actually. And there's, there's, as you know, Hector, there's extensive show notes on every show after we have a guest or we talk about a various topic because we're a topic-driven show, not an event-driven show. Um, we talk about one topic usually, whether it's a book or a person or an idea, and we dive deep. And then we put up pretty extensive show notes with other further reading videos maybe or other podcasts that we like or, or links to books that we like or articles. Uh, so it's pretty extensive. And it's, it's, our, it's our way to persuade, basically, is what we're trying to do. We're, we're, we're battling in the arena of ideas uh, with this show. So something that you mentioned is uh, you said, uh, you know, you would never want to be a consultant. <laughs> and, um, and the Verisage Institute is... is, is is the way you um, kind of quench that consultant thirst without wearing the consultant hat, I would say. Did I interpret that correctly? Yes. Okay. Um, however, I am a consultant, or at least I call myself one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I understand. I only do that when, when I have the client's trust. You know, uh, before I have the client's trust, I'm an accountant. And then once I build that rapport, I become a consultant. It's so kind of an interesting concept. Um, you know, I, I never hung a, sh a shingle up saying Hector Consulting Services. I, I just, I find it very difficult that people don't like Google, I need a consultant. You know, um, what, what I think ends up happening is uh, you, you get your foot in the door with a business owner or a small business or a small enterprise and you start fixing or helping in a particular topic, you know, doing a tax return, balancing the books, uh, you know, helping with some legal services fixing their computer system, whatever. And then you, you start uncovering some, you know, huge potential uh, transformative ways of making the business more effective. You know, whether it's by, as you say all the time, you know, a price based on value or, you know, uh, encourage pe uh, these people to uh, train their employees or educate their employees more. I mean, there's just so many opportunities that we find. And and I call myself a consultant just because I don't know what other name to give it. Um, however, 
I actually take from, from the Verisage Institute, from the Soul of Enterprise, from your books, and I happen to consult in some of the stuff you teach. So I know I, I probably owe you a royalty of some sort. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, so I, so I, I, you know the, the, the Advisors Corner, this podcast is, is kind of my experimenting, my experimenting to discussing the challenges of consulting or the challenges of any business practitioner that is, is out there to give business advice. And interviewing people like you and listening to people like you, it just I think it just at least gets the mind uh, bubbling up and thinking of ideas. So I really, truly appreciate not just what the Verisage Institute uh, does, but the Soul of Enterprise in particular has been a big inspiration for me personally. As a matter of fact, probably the reason why I said, you know what, I, I should start my own podcast uh, was partly because of the stuff that I learned through the Soul of Enterprise and there's another Verisage fellow. Um, I'm not sure what his status is. His name is Kirk, Kirk Bowman, and he has a podcast called The Art of Value. Do you listen to that one? Yes, I sure do. I love it. Yeah, he's, he's, he does a great job. Um, you know, uh, uh, Kirk, I think he used to be an IT person. And it's interesting how, you know, IT person accounting is not the same thing. Maybe kind of similar. You can take the concept and you can kind of dive deep into into that and he has a lot of people in the industry that he interviews and stuff that's another podcast that i strongly recommend it's called the art of value now moving on uh ron thank you very much for sharing that by the way uh moving on to some of the things that verisage actually uh has as sort of you said that you have a set of ideals or a set of you know what's what's verisage's um uh, category per se, like you, you, you're not just a think tank. Period. You're a think tank of a specific set of ideas. What, what is, what is uh, trying to ask the question? <laughs> what is uh, <laughs> the category in which you put the type of ideas and the type of concepts that Verisage uh, and yourself and your fellows actually discuss? I guess the scope of of what you what you focus in. Right. We're really there to improve or better the professions for posterity. And so that's a pretty broad broad value statement or purpose statement, but it really is executed by looking at professionals as knowledge workers, not timekeepers, right? So we talk a lot about the knowledge economy, what it means to be a knowledge worker, how that's different from say a service worker. When I entered this profession, Hector, I was taught about I was a service worker, and I never challenged that. I said, yeah, I'm in a professional. We still call them professional service firms, but we don't believe they're service firms. We believe they're knowledge firms. And so what's that difference mean? And it's looking at moving from efficiency to effectiveness or even better efficaciousness where we're providing the maximum benefit for whatever it is we're doing for our customers. And so it's, it, it's, it's a whole set of ideas that revolve around that. Obviously, pricing is part of it, getting rid of the billable hour. I often tell people that my personal purpose in life is to once and for all bury the billable hour and the timesheet across all professions. Uh, and, and we will, and we are burying the billable hour and the timesheet. I mean, we are literally killing it, driving a stake through its heart and making it completely obsolete. Uh, which is no small feat, by the way, to to change the reigning paradigm of a profession because the timesheet and the billable hour have been around for 100 years, at least in the U.S., 
Um, and so it's a big it's a big goal. It's a big hairy audacious goal, if you will. Um, but it's also um, exhilarating to know that you could do it and 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 make and see the progress. I mean, I'm not saying that the billable hour and timesheets death is within uh, within reach, but I do believe it's within sight. We have moved the needle tremendously since Verisage was formed in 2001. Now you've got Sage. You've got into it. You've got other software companies. They've all stamped their imprimatur. Whether you want to call it firma now, firma the now, firma the future, I don't care what you call it. They've all put their imprimatur on value pricing and even getting rid of the timesheet, uh, which is significant. I couldn't have said that 10 or 15 years ago, except perhaps for Sage and the work I did with Ed, but not corporate sponsorship like they are now. So we're seeing massive changes across all professions and I know you you know are into accounting and you've seen massive changes and of course one of the biggest driving forces of that is, is the technology the cloud I believe AI and other technology too is coming that will have a deep impact blockchain technology is another one um, and so Verisage is just contributing to the acceleration of, of the need for professionals to rethink their business model yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I have seen it in my profession. I've seen myself uh, change it. So I just want to give some context. That if you happen not to be working in a large accounting firm or a large um, uh, law firm and you're listening to this, what exactly does you know burying the timesheet mean? So I'll, if I, if you don't mind, I'll just kind of just kind of discuss that real quick because not everybody it's in that world. Um, most of the times when you hire a lawyer or an accountant in a traditional sense, um, you, you set up some sort of engagement in which you pay, let's say, $2,000, $3,000 or something like that, which they call a retainer. And then basically what every single employee within that firm, whether it is you know the partner or the paralegal or the bookkeeper, whatever, every time you have an interaction with the client, whether it's a phone call or an email or do data entry, or print a report, or email a tax return, whatever. Um, they go into a timesheet and they log it. Hey, work this client for ten minutes. Work this client for an hour. And then what ends up happening is that the work on that timesheet gets translated into an invoice. Okay. So this is what Ron is talking about. I just want to clarify that because I have a client that manufactures um, furniture, and they give the client the price to the, their clients up front. It's all custom furniture. And they say, look, this uh, sofa is going to be $8,000. But internally, they have to pay their employees based on the hours they work because they're not salaried employees. They're hourly employees. So they still fill out a timesheet. And you're not talking about burying that, right? You're, you're, you're burying the concept of using a timesheet as a method to build clients by the hour or as a method uh, to to measure effort and revenue. Um, and, and the most important piece is that the time you spend on something uh, doesn't necessarily uh, increase or decrease its value because, you know, I personally am an expert in just data manipulation. I can import three, 4,000 transactions into an accounting system in, in a couple of hours. Um, and a traditional accountant that probably doesn't focus on that will take 10 hours, 12 hours, 13 hours, and then they will have different staff members working on it and they would have mixed rates and stuff like that. So what ends up happening is it's not apples to apples to take a look at 
somebody's hourly rate and the number of hours they're going to spend versus somebody else's hourly rate and the hours they're going to spend if the end result is going to be the same. I mean, so did I explain that correctly? What you're trying to bury is the notion that we need to measure our time as a mechanism to invoice the services that we offer, correct? Correct. That that is true. Um, and, and in terms of hourly wages in a factory, I, you know, I, there's labor laws and all of that, so it's it's very hard to think about moving away, uh, you know, to a different model in in that sector. Although I, I I think there's ways to do it, but I'm also even challenging the idea of measuring time, even in terms of costs, even in a factory. I, I don't I, th- I don't think it's a data point that's that's very useful at all. In fact, I think it's quite arbitrary because it has nothing to do with the capacity of the factory. What matters is the cash cost, and accountants and cost accountants spend a lot of time managing costs that have nothing to do with cash. And therefore, I think time is a, is a wrong measurement almost for any business, um, almost for any purpose, other than, like you said, paying wages by the hour. I understand that, and there's all sorts of labor regulations around that, you know, most professional firms anyway, uh, you know, most people are paid salaries. So irrespective of how many hours they work, they're going to make so much per week. You know, if I work an extra 10%, it doesn't mean I'm going to get more 10% more if I'm a salaried employee. Yeah, and I'm going to slightly disagree with you, not with the concept, but more of how it's framed. Um, going back to my client with the furniture factory, Um it's just very, very difficult to to present the concept of doesn't matter, you know, what your employees are doing at what time for what job and how long they took to build XYZ furniture. You know, at the end, it all works out and use that as a way of just saying, let's adapt a non-timesheet based mechanism. So, I, you know, I would just like to present that um, sometimes framing it differently just from my personal experience framing it like you know if we actually know and understand the resources involved with just tracking time because i i do actually i do agree with the fact that if you have you know three employees and one is double the speed as the other one in terms of getting output that you could essentially you know, have one employee that's more expensive than the other one. I mean, I, I, it's difficult to disagree with that, which is, you know, the way you frame it, uh, it, it it's just hard to kind of kind of explain that that concept. But what I'm saying is, I think that just getting rid of the whole uh, act of measuring, you know, whether you know whether we have a manager look at spreadsheets every week to make sure the information is complete or somebody look at the cameras to see if somebody's clocking in and out or or someone see if you know somebody punched out correctly for lunch etc cetera, etc cetera. I, I do believe that just getting rid of the mechanisms and the resources behind just the act of measurement in itself can free up the business to to focus on what matters which is innovating and marketing right and we'll talk about Peter Drucker in a second. I, th- I think that's a very impactful yeah, and quote. Um, that's a good point. And the, and the customer experience. Yeah, right. right? Exactly. We spend a, you know, if you look at a company like Toyota, let's, let's stay on manufacturing because this fascinates me. Toyota has never used a standard cost accounting system. Now, this is one of the most 
innovative, most profitable. Uh, you know, they kicked the American automobile company's butts um, in, in, in almost every measure, cost per car, profit per car, and anything you want to look at. And they don't have a standard cost accounting system because they don't let costs, historical costs especially, dictate how they run their factory. They run their factory by the, the best ways to run their factory from, you know, from an optimization model. So they're, they're, it's not that they're not measuring things, it's that they're measuring different things and things that are important to the customer. And if you look at a traditional factory, perhaps more like a General Motors, they tend to look at cost accounting, standard cost accounting, allocate costs, they tend to focus on efficiency, and the cars they turn out are crap. And that's why they got their butts kicked, and they're continuing to get their butts kicked. By, by companies that focus actually on the customer experience and value to the customer and work backwards into the factory engineering how they're going to turn out the car that pleases the customer. And that concept I think applies to a factory or it applies to a professional firm. It applies really to any business. Values on the outside, not on the inside. And also thinking about sort of the, the, the more modern business models, you know, the, the business models that are very pervasive in the world of apps and dot coms, which is, you know, build a user base, uh, just build a user base, you know, prove that people are looking, right, that you have eyes and ears looking at that thing, whatever it is, right, whether it's a you know website or an app or a publication. Um, and then figure out how to monetize later. You know, it's a kind of an interesting concept. If if uh, uh, Zuckerberg would have said before they did Facebook, would have said, well, how long, how much does it cost me per server hour and electricity and IT for every new sign up, and how much will it cost me to innovate and add, you know, games? If you think about that mentality, that mentality would have gotten Facebook nowhere. Um, you know, Google, Google um, IPO'd with negative equity, they IPO'd with, with more expenses than income. They, they went public and they're one of the most powerful companies in the world, a broke company, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that focused heavily on the long game, the long-term game. So I think that, you know, some of the things that, that, you, that you teach here are more about thinking about the long-term game, right? I mean, customer loyal, I mean, how, how do you measure customer loyalty, right? So I think, most people would say, well, you know, customer loyalty is measured if they keep buying from you every year. That's definitely a loyal customer. If the customer doesn't uh, fire you because of a human mistake and they understand because you have a, a relationship with them, like it happened to me, I, my wife just gave birth last week and I, I literally filed a very big, good client, a tax return late. Um, I filed it today, <laughs> actually, this morning. Um, you know, and then this client... You know, Every other client that I didn't apply this type of, uh, you know, method to would have said, screw it, I'm going to another accountant. But this person says, hey, I understand. I think those are the type of things that we usually in accounting or, or finance or any sort of models in which we put numbers into a spreadsheet. Those are the type of things that we don't see, we don't value, we don't um, place as, 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 as the long-term sustainable things that make our business grow. You know, you say the word, I'm not, not a, as, as a big as a wordsmith as you, you said posterity. That's, that's the word that you use for the various age goals. Right. 
Okay, so poster- yep. posterity means, I mean, just by using the word post, posterity means, you know, sustainable, something that lasts a long time, something that withstands the changes of technology and time. Would you say that's about the definition of that? Yes. Yeah. It's about future generations, our, our children, you know, that okay. type of thing. Exactly. So so just not being susceptible to technology and things like that. I mean, you know, the, the today's coal worker, for example, you know, we all know as society that at some point we'll stop mining coal. I mean, I, I you know, I, regardless of what political stance you have in terms of whether it's good or bad to do it now, we know that, you know, because coal will run out, it's not sustainable it's not set up for posterity so we we may uh, as a society you know bite ourselves in the foot in terms of i mean shoot ourselves in the foot to say you know we'll stop mining coal which is cheaper cheap cheaper than something solar or whatever uh with the long game in terms of you know having something more sustainable so you can do things now that cost more money that don't make sense in terms of immediate profit um, because they're going to have a long-term value, such as customer loyalty or sustainability. Now, you don't have to comment on the coal thing, but <laughs> but uh, but I'm just trying to use an example that's just kind of so, some of the things that we're dealing with right now. You know, this year, today, you know, we have to make choices as a business, as a society, to to sacrifice what we think is the best short-term profit for some sort of you know long-term strategy. Wouldn't you think? Right. No, I, I and I liked your uh, example of Facebook not worrying about, you know, cost of the electricity for every new user. And, and, and this is my problem with a lot of measurements, Hector, that we do as accountants or MBAs or just, you know, business people. We have this, this illusion of control with measurement. We think if it's data, it's, it's by definition objective. We have a law in Verisage that says all measurements are, in, are, are judgments in disguise because it matters what you think you need to measure, right? It's not that we're anti-measurement, it's that we want to make sure the measurements are the right thing. And just let's, you, you mentioned Google, an innovative company, incredibly innovative. There's, by definition, there's no data on an innovation. There's no, there's no measurement for it, there's no data on it, right? We don't know if it's going to work. We have to, th- we have to throw it out there and, and let the market test it. And to the extent that we, we fixate on measurement, then I think it stifles trying stuff new because something new, by definition, has no data. How do I know that the iPad or the iPod or the iPhone is going to be a success? There's no data on that. It was, a, it, was an intu- it was an intuition. And I guess that's one of the reasons why we called our show the soul of enterprise. What that really means is, we believe there's more to business than just material things, right? We believe that business has a soul. It's spiritual. I don't mean spiritual in the religious sense. I mean spiritual in the sense that it can't be measured. Something by something spiritual, by definition, can't be measured. And I just think business people in general, especially MBAs and CPAs, we're fixated on measurements. You know that that old saw: if you can't measure it, you can't manage it manage it. I used to believe that as an accountant. I firmly believe that. Maybe it was because it was self-aggrandizing, right? Because who, who better to measure than accountants? But now I think it's dangerously destructive to have that worldview. And I've completely changed my mind on that. Um, so I, I, I totally agree with what you said. And I just one more thing on the innovation in the Google IPO. 
you look at the company like WhatsApp, right? That that uh, Facebook bought a couple years ago for eighteen billion with a B dollars. It's fifty. It was like thirty-five programmers in Georgia, not the state, the country. And you know, if you look at their book value, I I would be blown away if there was a million dollars of book value on their balance sheet. You know, they probably own some computers, some furniture, and a foosball table. But they were sold for or bought like for eighteen billion dollars. That just shows you that wealth, real wealth, comes from ideas and human capital, not you know, not physical things like coal, oil, real estate, or things, uh, other things like that, but from ideas. I mean, 80% of the world's wealth resides in human capital, according to the World Bank. And, and that's significant, and that's why we're in a knowledge economy, not a service or even an industrial economy anymore. Right. I mean, I mean, just so much to talk about. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a cancer survivor. Okay. 12 years ago, uh, I was diagnosed with lymphoma and I went to, you know, the whole process that, you know, scares the heck out of you and makes you think and makes you questions and et cetera, et cetera. But one of the really interesting things about it is, you know, I came out cured. Right. And, you know, I think about, you know, technology, I think about business, I think about these things, but then I think about, what what really does matter, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now? What what are people going to value the most, in my, my opinion? People are going to value the most, um, you know, quality of life and longevity. I don't think anything else will super, ever supersede that, um, you know. So, you know, I don't think we are going to find or discover a magic medicine or a magic something that's going to give us that. I believe that innovation, technology, medicine, application of knowledge, um, it's likely what will get us there. So it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, we, we for hundreds of years, we as society, we look for resources. That's what we're looking for, right? We, entire wars right, happen over, over spices, over gold, over oil. Um, but that's a resource that will run out. And there's just the, the one resource that will never run out. I mean, other than probably the sun <laughs> um, is, you know, our capacity to think, our capacity to innovate and our capacity to transfer knowledge. And all companies, whether they're a professional knowledge firm, as you call it, a services firm, a, a factory, that is the area that they have to value the most. I mean, um, just recently, one of my clients, you know, they, they hired me to do consulting work and they asked Hector, you know, we want to, we just want to be better. Like, tell us, I mean, they just gave us this really weird open scope to say, just walk in and tell us what we can do better. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a perfect client, by the way, because it's basically an open, yeah, yeah. it's an open engagement, but, you know, applying what I learned from you and, and, and other people that think like you, um, I interviewed six people and, after my six interviews, I realized that two of them or three of them had knowledge that nobody else had. You know, so I asked the CEO, I said, hey, if Mary leaves tomorrow, what would happen? And he, and he started thinking about it, saying, well, it would be semi-catastrophic. I'm like, really? You're $60,000 and, and a, a, $6, a year employee leaves tomorrow and that's catastrophic? What the heck is going on here? You know, and uh, well, they're like, well, because, you know, she knows this and she knows that and she knows. I'm like, you know, hasn't it bothered you to like sit down and write down what she knows 
or or tell her to spend two hours a week just creating and just say call it a manual quote unquote. So basically, I literally spend six hours and I transform this company by implanting the idea in the CEO's head that their job was to document what people know. Um, obviously, you know you can call that an operating manual. You can cover. You can call it a knowledge base. You can call it a standard operating uh, procedure, or a standard operating platform. You know, different companies call it different things. You know, I never really constructed the the, the manual. All I did was convince the CEO that that was that's the company's top top priority. And you know what? There was no ROI on that in the short term. Like, there's no way to say, well, your sales will go up if you do this, your sales will go up if you do that. But I believe it was like nine or 10 months later when I saw that person again, the person called me over, paid me my rate, my hourly rate. And I'm sorry, I do charge hourly rates for certain clients um, to literally we'll show me. We'll I, know, I know, I know, I know. To show me, to show me what they put together. Like, this is what the person brought me in for. So actor, look, nine months later, we did this. What do you think? And I basically went over, it was like, 600 pages. And I said, wow, this is awesome. And, and what that person told me, which is something I I kind of knew, but I never really said, they said, the best thing is that we just hired an employee and they, they we spent a whole week training them based on this manual. So one of the things that the person said, it says, look, the creation of this, let's call it central body of knowledge of all the accumulated things that all these employees have learned over time has now helped us streamline new employees and you can bet that that new employee is going to be you know 10 times 20 times better than that crucial employee that if they left would be catastrophic just because they're starting off with the body of knowledge right off the bat so i mean that's just something that i've applied and i I think it's just very pertinent to to what you're saying no i think that's great i mean you're so right knowledge management is is key uh, capturing that knowledge that's in everybody's heads. It's one of the reasons, as you know, we, we love uh, the after-action review, um, which is a concept we borrowed from the U.S. military, but uh, it, it really does transform a culture into a knowledge organization because they capture knowledge. We, you know, we don't usually think of the Army as a knowledge organization. We think of them as you know, a group of people that like to break things and kill people, but the U.S. Army and other armies around the world um, they're they're actually knowledge organizations. They actually deploy knowledge, and they have a great saying in the military: they never want to build the same bridge twice. Which means if some, if a troop's already done it somewhere, there's lessons they learned, and those lessons can be shared with another troop around the world who's building the same bridge. And that's what the after action review allows. So any way a company, any type of company, uh, can capture knowledge, it's going to make them not only more efficient, but it's also going to make them more effective. It's why the former H, uh, CEO of HP used to say, if only HP knew what it knows, we'd be three times more profitable. And I love that line because it's so true. Most of the time in an organization, there's knowledge that the person has sitting right next to you, and you have no idea that they know that. And so you sit in your office and you recreate the wheel, even though they could have helped you and, and probably done it in you know a tenth of the time, and not just the time, but the effectiveness of the output would increase if you knew what the person next door to you knew. Yeah, and the, the most interesting concept of that, which is something that I've, you know, I'm also sort of discovering with life and experience, is that although 
the, you know, the things that you say and you teach and your group uh, teaches is, you know, that there's, you know, measuring time is nonsense, you know, and you use a lot of interesting little uh, ways to, you know, um, illustrate it. Like the only time that time matters is in jail and things like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, however, it, it, what's interesting is there's a little bit of truth behind the reasons why we measure time. I, I think that time, it is the one uh, resource that that puts every single person on earth on the same keel. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, you can have the most powerful person in the world and you know the poorest, less, the opposite of that, right? The least powerful person in the world. And this most powerful person in the world uh, has two days to live. They would trade everything for the one that has five, six years to live. Does that mean that, I don't know if that concept makes sense to you, but what I'm saying is all of us. It, it does. Right. All no, of it us. Does. It does. It, it, yes. Yeah, I'm saying all of us, what we, what we measure and cherish the most, I, I'm say, I would say it's two things. It's time and memories. I would say these are the two things that human beings cherish the most, right? Time, not in terms of, time in the past, but time in the future. So how much time I have left and the memories of how you have spent that time. Those are like the two things that most people enjoy the most. As a matter of fact, you know, almost every service out there, um, whether it's a professional service or, you know, something like Disney, it's there for two reasons. You're, you're there to either save somebody else time or create more better pleasant memories and when you think about it you know in those like two little concepts i think that starts helping you you know just think differently overall i mean there's something that's sort of a mixture of things that i learned from multiple people but that was my own self-realization what do you think about that no i think that's right i mean time it, it can't be stored it can't be sold it can't be bought it can't be hoarded you know it's non-replenishable i mean it's actually a constraint, right? And it's a constant constraint. And Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs or, you know, the hobo under the bridge, we're all subject. Every living thing is subject to the constraint of time. Um, but I don't think time necessarily is a resource um, because it's, it's what you do with the time that matters, right? What, even if you're paying somebody hourly, like in a factory, you're not really buying their time if you really think about it, you're buying their abilities, you're buying their knowledge, what they can do, their their productivity, their their output, what, the results that they can create. But I but I totally get that the time is 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 um, you know it's it's a constant measurement, and that's why you know if you think about it, a measuring stick, any measuring stick, and most things that we measure are some somehow brought back to time, whether it's the second speed of light, whatever it might be. Um, because it's so good because it's a constant constraint. But the thing about a measuring stick is it can't be part of what it measures. And th that's one of the flaws with the billable hour. It, it's conflating a constant measurement with an output or a value judgment uh, on the product or service that you create. And that's where we run into trouble. But I totally get that, yes, we are all constrained by time. I think it's how we use it that matters, what we do with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but but I'm saying this is the argument for the people that will go back to measurement because we talked about measurement. It's 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 an argument for the people that hang on to the measurement of time, just because it is it is a it's a, it's a pervasive 
uh, and you, you, I call the resource, you call it um, constraint, just because of different concepts, right? You're, you're thinking about project management. Um, yeah, from project management perspective, it's a constraint, right? From a deadline perspective, it's a constraint because I can't, you know, I can't take blocks of time and store them, save them, use them later, or I can't get three people, three persons, eight hours and convert it into 24 hours. It doesn't doesn't exist. It doesn't work that way. But I, I really meant it. A resource from a from a economic perspective. I mean, just you know, the economies of life. You know, it is it is it is the one thing that puts every single human being on on an even keel. I think so. That's I'm just I'm, I'm just illustrating why it's so difficult for people to to let go of the measurement of time because it is such a it, it is such a valued concept for most people. Well, you know, there's there's interesting uh, work on this, the the history of time, and and uh, how how different, as you know, actor, different cultures view time differently, right? Some cultures, no problem if you show up for a meeting an hour late or whatever. Other cultures, boy, you better be right on time or even early. Uh, you know, how we view time as a culture, or even as an individual, says a lot about us. I mean, some cultures are more relaxed about it, more laid back. Others are more harried, and you know, time is money, and we got to rush, 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 rush. Um, my my issue is, I, I I think a lot of people, a lot of business people, confuse being busy with being profitable, <laughs> and and I don't think the two are correlated at all. Yeah, sure. And I just just occurred to me you were mentioning uh, time being viewed differently in different cultures and things like that. Um, and I'm paraphrasing. I, I, I don't follow Deepak Chopra per se, but my mom does, <laughs> and, she, and she always mm. um, she always tells me something insightful that she learned from it. And there was one thing that he said it was really interesting. And I'm paraphrasing here, but the concept is saying is, you know, what is time? You know, like Deepak Chopra said, you know, what is time? And time is a concept that mankind invented to measure inevitable change. And I just, you know, I find that to be just like, again, I mean, again, there's nothing actionable about that, but it, it is, it's just a, a different way of kind of understanding what time is. Time is something that it's a social uh, construct, right? We, 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 human, humans created time in order to measure, you know, the changes. I mean, it just, I just never heard it conceptualized this way. And I thought it was uh, pretty insightful. <laughs> I think uh, first off, George Carlin, the comedian, uh, the late comedian, has a great a whole a whole uh, act on this, and he says basically the same thing that time is a human construct. The comedian Stephen Wright, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he said time was invented so everything doesn't happen at once. <laughs> yes, Stephen Wright has all the one-liners, right? He's a one-liner guy, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite comedians. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's great. Okay, so we're um, about to wrap up. I know you have to go, and it's uh, top of the hour. So I just want to kind of just go real quick. Um, was there anything on, on Verisage or the soul of enterprise, maybe some of the Verisage laws that you would like to uh, mention, um, or um, or you want to just move to final thoughts? Uh, well, wow, Verisage, we have lots of laws. Um, I'll share a couple with you. Uh, we Ed and I did a show on this, on the soul of enterprise, but... Um, the, the probably the most famous is uh, Baker's Law, just because I always wanted to have my own law, uh, and that is bad customers drive out good customers. And the thinking there is, you know, we give a disproportionate amount of time, resources, energy, including emotional energy, to our worst customers, 
And when we do that, we put at risk our best customers. So when we show this line to audiences, bad customers drive out good customers, everybody sits there and nods and says, oh, that, that is so right. And so most of these laws we have found empirically, just they, they resonate with people. Another one I love is Ed's law. Uh, all measurements are judgments in disguise because the, there's a lot of things we can measure in business. The question is, what are the measures that really matter? And then another uh, one of our favorite laws is effectiveness is always and everywhere more important than efficiency because it's effectiveness that gives a business a competitive advantage, not efficiency, because competitors can copy efficiency pretty easily. Now, what I mean by this is not that we're anti-efficiency. We can be efficient with things, no doubt about it. Airplanes and, and uh, computers and, and apps and all of that, no problem. You should get the best, the latest, the greatest, and be as efficient as you can with technology and things. But when it comes to human relationships, you can't be efficient with a fellow human. We recoil from efficiency in humans. Nobody describes their marriage as efficient, right? You have to be effective with people. And effectiveness with human relationships is really what builds a competitive advantage. If you think about the personal experience you get in a Ritz-Carlton versus another hotel, you know, you ask somebody at a Ritz-Carlton where such and such conference room is, they just don't rip out a map and, and show you. They walk you there and they engage you in a conversation. That's not very efficient. It is, however, highly, highly effective. And it's what gives them a competitive advantage, and it's why we gladly pay more to stay there. Um, so those are some of our some of our uh, more favorite laws. Yeah, interesting on that effectiveness efficiency line. Uh, Disney Institute. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Disney Institute, but kind of yes. like, like an MBA uh, for uh, you, know, all, you know all with Disney themes. Uh, or Disney learned themes anyway. Um, they 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 tell the story of a custodian, a person that you know kind of just cleans the garbage and stuff like that, um, being asked by a guest, a little girl that says, "Hey, where's the you know where's the ice cream shop?" And instead of the person being effective, right, which is uh, sorry, being efficient, which is just keep brooming while kind of nodding with your nose or your or your mouth right saying mm -hmm. over there right uh yeah th mm -hmm. that that's being that's being efficient like it just is brooming and throwing away the garbage as it's supposed to um however you know uh disney is there to create memories right um so in order for them to be effective every single employee has to uh buy into this idea so the story they tell is that the custodian for, for them to be effective is they let go the broom let go the trash and walk the person to the ice cream shop, but not just walk it, march and sing along whatever Disney songs. Um, so the family follows along with it. And then at the end, they want to take a picture with a custodian and stuff like that. Yeah, that that's, you know, that's effectiveness in terms of staying on purpose, which is, you know, having happy, happy customers that will come back again and will be loyal and will buy the movies and tell their friends and family to go to Disney and so, so, and, and so, so, so being effective um, is sometimes beyond your specific task or your specific job, I think. Um, another interesting story, I, had, um, uh, I was helping one of my clients hire someone. And for some reason, the conversation about words per minute 
came along. You, you, you're familiar with words per minute, right? Sure. <laughs> you know, this is this this used to be. I guess back in the '90s. I mean, I was just a kid. This used to be like the ultimate mesh, measurement of an effective assistant or an effective um, secretary. <laughs> and one of my clients was telling me, and there were there was a story. They told me they were like, you know, we hired this person that had 120 words per minute. I mean, there's like astonishing things, but she always. Uh, uh, wrote a whole bunch of garbage, grammar problems. You know, they didn't make sense. You know, so so you you could be you can mean you can write super fast and you know get a letter drafted done in three minutes or f- five minutes. But then if you have to go back and correct it and say this doesn't make any sense, it's just not effective. So I just I just find it to be an interesting efficiency effective uh, story. What does Drucker say about that? Drucker has a, a you know I'll let you, you probably memorized it, but. Uh, Peter Drucker, which is a person that I know inspires you and inspired me a lot, another author, thought leader. What was his line on effectiveness and efficiency? Oh boy, he's he's got lots of them, but he thought that you know uh, it was all about effectiveness because efficiency, uh, you know, efficiency is just a measurement. Effectiveness is doing the right thing, and so I, I the line that usually gets attributed to Drucker is efficiency is doing things right. While effectiveness is doing the right thing, correct. Um, but yeah, but that's not even technically right. I, I don't know if we want to get into this, but actually, efficiency—the measure—it's always a measurement. It's just a ratio. It's outputs divided by inputs. It's a blind, stupid measurement with no judgment behind it. Um, so it doesn't say anything with respect to doing something right. Just because you're efficient, like you said, with the typist, doesn't make it right. Doesn't mean the letter or the typewritten document is actually right. Um, uh, but effectiveness is a judgment. Efficiency is just a measurement, but effectiveness is a judgment. It's another thing that he taught. And Drucker was far more, far more interested in effectiveness because he knew that's where the competitive advantage lies. And that's why he titled one of his famous books, The Effective Executive, not The Efficient Executive. Exactly. That's a uh, great book, by the way. Really, really good book. And talking about books, Ron, thank you very much for coming. Um, if you like uh, what Ron says or the stuff that he talks about, um, definitely go to verisage.com and check out the Institute. Go to, uh, and by the way, it's not like a college or a place you can take classes. It's an Institute from the perfect perspective of a think tank. So there's show notes from the soul of enterprise and articles and uh, links to maybe articles that Ron and other fellows wrote outside of the Institute, but obviously all within this theme of, uh, better business practices through pricing and killing or burying the billable hour. But in terms of books, I want to make a quick recommendation. If you like, uh, if you want to read more uh, about Ron's work on pricing, I recommend two books. One is Pricing on Purpose, uh, which really you know talks about the, the, the more of the exercise of discovering uh, the value that you're providing in order to uh, actually come up with a price. And then uh, implementing value pricing, which I'm not sure if it necessarily supersedes the book, but implementing value pricing talks about more about the specific ways to go about uh, implementing it in a knowledge firm. So I think those two books are great. And, um, and even within uh, those books, you cite other great books on pricing, like Reed Hol- Dr. Reed Holden's book, which I believe is, is, is called something with pricing. I don't remember the exact name. Also a great book. Now, in terms of uh, transforming your professional firm into a future firm, 
Um, you can read The Firm of the Future, which was written, I believe, in 2003. Correct me if I'm wrong, which was uh, sort of uh, his view about where we're moving with the profession. And then another book, which I started reading, uh, I haven't finished it yet, uh, is Mind Over Matter, which is, this is more about the concept, right? The concept of intellectual capital and how that's a major source, source of wealth. Mind Over Matter is a book that could have been written, I think, 300 years ago and could be written 100 years ago. And it would have the same um, impact, right? Because I think that's you know, what you're trying to just... Um, is uh, proof that 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 knowledge and the stuff that we are capable of as human beings with our knowledge is more important than any physical resource that that we've had. So those are the you know the books that I that I read. I haven't read uh, Measure What Matters to Customers, but I I watched a couple of your uh, presentations on that. In Measure What Matters to Customers, I think it, it probably discusses the concepts about you know, not measuring time and things that don't matter, you know, measure what what it's effective in order to create a long-term customer and measuring things that will predict whether the customer will buy from you again or whether the customer is happy or not and that sort of things. Um, and I don't know if I... Exactly if, right. Yeah, if I mentioned... Other, I mean, because I just obviously read your other stuff. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'll tell you, you know, Ron's books are not cheap. You know, they're usually about 70 bucks a pop and stuff like that. But, you know, there has been no more, no bigger ROI. Um, You know, you you can't even put a value on a book that changes how you think and how you how you approach professional, your profession. There's no price on that. You know, a a book like um, The the Future of the Professions, uh, which is uh, by Suskin, uh, by the Suskin father and son, which is I know is a book impacted you a lot. I bought that book a couple months ago. That's a book that's what, $20, $30 or whatever. But that book was worth to me thousands of dollars. So I'll tell you, <laughs> Ron's books are not, uh, they're not cheap, but they're, they're, they're all high ROI, very impactful. So check out Ronald J. Baker in amazon.com. Uh, check out verisage.com and check out uh, the Soul of Enterprise podcast. Ron, any parting words? No, just thank you very much, Hector. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Me too, Ron. Thank you very much.